I've entitled this message, Here We Go Again. So often life is hard. It is especially hard when we go through the same problems over and over and over again. Just as the strong current of a river can erode the river's banks, so too the constant current of recurring hardships can begin to erode our patience, our graciousness, and ultimately even our faith in the goodness of God. We might ask ourselves, when is enough enough? David had been facing the relentless harassment and persecution by Saul. Saul literally had been out to kill David for an extended period of time. In chapter 24, if you will remember, there seemed to be a tremendous breakthrough. If you will recall, Saul had been persecuting David. And by the providence of God, Saul had entered the very cave in which David and his men had been hiding. Saul fell asleep. David had the perfect opportunity to exercise revenge and take Saul's life, but he resisted the temptation. Instead, he cut off a portion of Saul's robe, demonstrating that David could have killed Saul, but didn't. David then confronted Saul And we have an account of Saul's response. Just to remind you, let me read from 1 Samuel chapter 24, Saul's response. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and what you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done for me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. David must have felt relieved. He must have rejoiced in all that God had done and was doing. How God once again protected David from Saul. How David had been delivered from his enemy. And now, finally, Saul repents. Saul sees the error of his way. David must have just been on cloud nine, thinking of what a wonderful God there is and how wonderfully he has been delivered. He'd have cause for rejoicing that Saul had not taken his life, but rather, excuse me, he would have had Cause for rejoicing that David had not taken the life of Saul, but rather had showed restraint. He was willing to let God work. He was willing to place things in God's hands. But now we come to chapter 26. We find once again that Saul is up to his old tricks. Saul is again out to kill David. So what are we to think about this situation? And perhaps much more significantly, what was David to think about this situation? Was David a fool 
for not having killed Saul when he had that opportunity, when he let him go free, only now to find that Saul is out to get him again? Should he have known that Saul would never change? Shouldn't he have realized that this was going to be a constant situation that he was going to face Was David naive in trusting in God? That God would take care of David, that God would provide for him, that God would look out for him? Would or should have David done it differently? As he reflects back on all that has taken place. And now that this same situation once again presents itself, what should David do this time? How should he respond? One can only wonder about the thoughts that went through David's mind. How would he process all that was going on? What would he think about God in all of this? Well, fortunately, we do not have to speculate about what goes through the mind and heart of David, for our passage clearly reveals it to us. We find David's words that tell us what were his thoughts and how he was processing all that had taken place and all that was taking place. The passage before us neatly divides into three sections, and they are sections that are delineated by interactions that David has with others. The first section is David's interaction with Abishai, verses 6 to 12. The second is David's interaction with Abner in verses 13 to 16. Then lastly, David's interaction with Saul, verses 17 to 25. The first five verses give us the background. So let us begin there. There are some striking similarities between chapter 24 and 26. There are also some significant differences. I could take the time to to go through and show you all the similarities and then all the differences, and uh, it's quite interesting, but I'm going to refrain, for I have plenty of material already this morning. But I will point out one striking similarity, and that is that the Ziphites stir up Saul. If you look at verse 1, it says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekelah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? This is going to prove to be important later. That's why I bring this to your attention. For it is not only David that is going to face a second temptation as to what he is going to do in a particular situation. Saul faces a second temptation as well. For it is these very same Ziphites that had stirred him up in chapter 24. Uh, uh, excuse me, chapter 23, 1 Samuel 23, 19. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish, on the hill of Aquila, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire. Come down, and our part shall be to do, surrender him unto the king's hand. Well, Saul is going to yield to this temptation. He has repented. But now he is going to once again yield to the temptation of seeking David's life. 1 Samuel 26, verse 2. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph. 
with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Zeph. One striking difference in the two narratives is David's actions. In chapter 23, through God's providence, Saul was placed in David's lap. David was hiding in a cave, and by the providence of God, Saul was brought into the very same cave in which David was hiding. No forethought on the part of David, no plan, no scheming, just the providential working of God in which David was passive. In chapter 26, David takes action. First, David does some reconnaissance work. He sends out spies to find out Saul's location, verse 3. And Saul encamped on the hill of Aquila, which is beside the road of the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. David now goes on the offensive. David does not wait for Saul to come to David. David is going to go to Saul. Again, David takes the offensive, verse 5. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw this place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around about him. So now the stage is set. Now the question is, what is David going to do? How is he going to respond to this new yet old threat? How is he going to conduct himself in relationship to Saul and in relationship to God? What is he going to do? Well, we first look at David's interaction with Abishai. David seeks a volunteer to go with him into the very midst of the enemy camp, verse 6. Then David said to Abimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? Well, Abishai volunteers to take on this dangerous duty at the end of verse 6. And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So they go down to the camp, and lo and behold, what they find, verse 7. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. So now we have Abishai's take on the matter. Abishai sees this situation as a work of God's providence. Verse 6, Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. This is obviously a work of God. This can't be just mere coincidence. This isn't just your lucky day that here we are in this camp and Saul is fast asleep with a spear stuck by his head. This is God at work giving your enemy into your hand, meaning that God wants you to strike him down. God wants you to kill him. Abishai was correct in at least recognizing God's providence at work. God's providence had overseen the circumstances. 
And we've been emphasizing through these passages different responses to the providence of God. And there is no question that God's providence was at work. If you look at verse 12, it says, So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake. And here's the reason. for They were all asleep. And here's the reason for that. Because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. God was at work. This is true. God had brought these circumstances to pass. This is true. However, Abishai was wrong in the understanding of what God was doing. He was right that God was at work, but he was wrong that God had given Saul into David's hands in order for David to kill Saul. And David realized that in verse 9. David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed to be guiltless? This is wrong. We can't take the life of the Lord's anointed. We would be guilty. We would be sinning against God. That was his conclusion in chapter 23. And it's again his conclusion in chapter 26. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. The circumstances are a little different. There is this deterioration of Saul having repented and no longer repentant. So he could look at the circumstances and say, well, things aren't the same this time. But David was able to look beyond the circumstances and say, but there's been no change in the character of God. There has been no change in what God has declared to be right and to be wrong. One of the great dangers in life is that the longer we are in a circumstance, the more tired we become, the more weak we become, the more we question whether or not we need to hold out, whether or not we need to continue on in following the Lord. But David doesn't weaken. David stands on principle. And now we have this wonderful declaration of David of his faith in the living God, verse 10. And David said, as the Lord lives, as the Lord lives, the stress is that God is a living God. In the Old Testament, there is a constant contrast between God, who is the living God, and the gods who are idols, who are not living gods. The idols cannot see. The idols cannot hear. The idols cannot protect. The idols cannot intervene in the life of an individual. But God is a living God. God is a God who sees. God is a God who hears. God is a God who can protect, and God is a God who can judge. God is alive, and God will act. This is very important for us to understand because some people's understanding of God's providence is more like the view of a fatalist. There is a world of difference between the concept of God's providence and fatalism. Fate is blind. Fate is purposeless. 
Fate is simply what will be, will be. Hey, sirrah, sirrah, without rhyme or reason. It is a belief that life is fixed regardless of one's choices. A fatalist believes that our choices don't matter. Life's outcomes are arbitrarily fixed in stone, controlled by some impersonal force, the stars, if you will, that are directing the paths of which fate dictates, but without purpose, without a goal. Providence is God's personal involvement in our lives that leads us to the fulfillment of God's purpose and the accomplishment of his will. Without God's providential help, David could not have made it into the camp and he certainly could not have exited safely. No, God's providence was at work. But providence does not mean that we are not left with real meaningful choices. Providence must be responded to. David is faced with a real choice at this moment, not just the pragmatic of whether Saul lives or dies, although that's pretty huge, but a real spiritual choice. That is, will he obey God or not? Is he going to follow the advice of Abishai, or is he going to stand on his principle? Will he follow the advice and rationalizing of Abishai? That it must be God's will for me to kill Saul? Or I could not have been successful to this point? Or will he give into a fatalist mentality? My choice doesn't matter. Or will he succumb to the situational ethics that says, you know, Abishai's right. Saul's my enemy. I've done nothing against him. I even spared his life when it was in my power to kill Saul. Surely he deserves to die. I'm only doing what is right. And he could have justified his actions. But we find that life's choices are not merely pragmatic. Not simply whether we're going to do something or not even if it's such a large decision as will Saul live or die. Life decisions are also moral choices. And most decisions are moral choices of following God or following ungodly advice or following our own instincts or following our own rationalizations or simply doing that which is in disobedience to God. What is striking in this account is David knows that he is in the right. If you look at verse 10, David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. David does not know how God's providence will manifest itself. He says the Lord will strike him. That would be a direct intervention by God. 
And David certainly had learned, just in the chapter previous to this, that God can do that with Nabal, where God had struck Nabal down. It's the exact same word. Or his day will come to die of somewhat natural causes. Or he will go down into the battle and perish. There'll be a battle and he'll go out and he'll die in battle. David doesn't know how God's providence will manifest itself, but David has complete confidence in God's providence. David learned that David needs to trust God. God will take care of it. David recognizes his duty before God, verse 11. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. That's the only thing he knows. He doesn't know how God's going to rectify this. He doesn't know what God's going to do. The one thing he knows is it's not within his power or right to take the life of Saul. He knows he's guiltless. He knows he's innocent. He's trusting God that God will defend him. But the one thing he knows is, I can't take his life. That's not right. You know, one might ask, hadn't David learned anything from his previous encounter with Saul in chapter 23? One might ask, hadn't David learned he was foolish to let Saul go the first time? How God hands him into David's lap a second time? Is David going to let him go again? Is he really going to do that? Hadn't he learned anything? Hadn't past experience informed his faith and actions? Shouldn't he be guided by what he previously experienced and has come to understand? And again, hadn't David learned anything at all? Well, amazingly, yes. David learned a very important truth that informed his actions and his decisions and his belief in God. And the fact is, David conducts himself in a very significant, different way. You remember in chapter 23, in chapter 24, we have these actions on the part of David. After 24, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David rose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5, and afterward David's heart struck him, because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to the to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing as the Lord's anointed. David previously had cut off Saul's robe in order to demonstrate that he had the opportunity to kill Saul, and he didn't. But then he struck. He said, I don't even have the right to touch him. To cut off a part of his robe is to stand in disobedience and disrespect of God. So now on this second occasion, David doesn't lay a hand on Saul. No messing with his robe. Doesn't lift his finger against Saul, but takes a spear 
and takes his jar. Rather than eroding his faith, this experiences increasing David's faith. Rather than moving him to disobedience, it actually motivates him to a greater obedience. Through this ordeal, David is growing. Through this ordeal, David is learning. Through this ordeal, God is being gracious to David. David passed the test. David's faith was not eroded by past events. Rather, David's strength and resolve were increased by past events. He learned from his regret. He learned from his remorse. He learned from his being smitten over having cut off a part of Saul's robe. David's confidence in God had been strengthened, and his obedience to God was made more complete and more informed. So now we move to David and Abner. Having taken Saul's spear and taking the jug of water by his head, they exit the camp, and once safely at a distance, David addresses Abner, verses 13 and 14. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of a hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you answer, Abner? And Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? Now David has Abner explain his dereliction of duty, verses 15 and 16. And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head. So David confronts Abner, and this is a very interesting confrontation, because David is charging Abner with a dereliction of duty that he had not fulfilled his responsibility. And that was to watch over the king. And the phrasing is very interesting. The question is, why hadn't Abner guarded Saul? And the question is intended to bring conviction. Abner is in the wrong in helping Saul against David. And Abner knows that. Through the experiences that took place, at least Abner should have seen the invisible hand of God at work. He should have understood God's providence. But what seems to be in view is the dereliction of duty on the part of Abner. Why have you not kept watch over the king? Verse 16, this thing that you have done is not good. Now, we find in verse 12 that the whole camp is asleep. Notice it says, So David took the spear and the jar of water from the 
Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any wake, for they were all asleep. It says, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Why is this significant? Well, once having fallen asleep, God puts them into a deep sleep. But it does not appear that there was any guard placed in the camp. They're all just sleeping. And then God puts them into a deep sleep. Saul says to Abner, Abner, where was the guard? Why didn't you guard your king? Abner, you're responsible for the health and well-being of the king. Where was the guard? Answer? Abner, in his heart of hearts, knew he didn't need one. He was not at all afraid that David was going to come down and kill Saul. David had had the opportunity in the past, and he didn't. Abner knew of Saul, of David's character. Abner knew what David was like. Abner had served alongside of David in battle. He knew the character. The very fact that he had not set a guard was a demonstration of what Abner knew to be true. And the fact that then David takes the spear and jar is evidence of what Abner knew to be true really was true. David was not out to kill Saul. He was not engaged in an act of treason. There was no reason for this army of 3,000 people to be assembled against David. It's a demonstration of David's innocence, of which Abner is very much aware. Now, that's very important. What brings us to the third, and that is David's interaction with Saul. Saul interrupts, having, of course, heard all that David had said in verse 17. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. David confronts Saul with a vital question. What is, why is Saul doing this? Verse 18, he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is in my hands? What has changed from the last time we were together? Why are you after me now? And that's a good question for all of us to consider. Why was this so-called repentant person, Saul, Back to his old tricks again. What motivated him? What moved him? What caused him to renege on his commitment to David and to God? So David asks this pertinent question. 
verse 19. Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Stirred up is the word to incense, provoke, persuade. Who persuaded you? Who provoked you? Who incensed you to come out against me? There were two possibilities as presented in these words. The first is that God was behind what Saul was doing. And if that were the case, David says that he will provide an offering to appease the Lord. Now that's obviously not the situation. God didn't stir up Saul to persecute David. So the other situation is, the other possibility was that Saul's vendetta and hatred were coming from his human advisors. And if that were so, then they should be cursed. Here is an important understanding of what is motivating Saul. Again, Saul had been repentant at the last meeting of David and Saul. So what happened? The answer is people stirred him up. People got him riled. People bent his ear and changed his mind about what he had intended to do. The Ziphites promoted the sinful desire in verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul. Saul didn't go to them. They came to Saul. Saul, 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 we know where he is. We got him this time. All you got to do is come down and get him. It's okay. Abner, the trusted leader of his army who gathers the 3,000 together. Abner knows better. Abner knows that David's an innocent man. Abner knows that David is not out for treason. But when Saul gets riled up because of the Ziphites, and he says to Abner, gather me men, we're going to go get David. Abner's all for it. Yes, let's get him. You're right. Let's go. Rather than to reason with the king, rather than to point out that David was an innocent man, do you remember David let you go? Do you remember what you promised before God? No. And rather he stirs him up. David's question is very pertinent. It was these people that had stirred Saul up. Now, that is not an excuse. Saul should have known and done better. But it is an explanation of what's taking place here. It helps us to understand the challenges that Saul was facing. He had his own sinful desires. But others, rather than helping, were fanning those flames. Encouraging him in his disobedience. And encouraging him in doing what was wrong. And all too often we find, when we are at our lowest, when we are at our weakest, 
When we are tired and weary, that there will be people that stir us up to do what's wrong. There will be people that incite within us the worst of our own motivations, the worst of our own desires. They don't help. They don't deter. Application. This teaches us the important influence that our trusted advisors, friends, and supporters can have upon us. Saul succumbs to the temptation that is supplied by others. But then we find that David resists the temptation and influences to go against the will of God. You see, it wasn't inevitable. It's an explanation, but it's not an excuse. Saul didn't have to listen to the Ziphites. Saul didn't have to listen to Abner. Saul made up his own mind. Like David did, who didn't listen to Abishai, but held on and did what's right. There are so many negative influences in this world, and it helps us understand why people make the decisions they do. But all the negative influences in the world don't actually provide an excuse. Each of us have our own moral choices to make. Each of us have to come to a conclusion of are we going to obey God or not. Saul is convicted and repents in verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. I have sinned. And further, he says in verse 21, My son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. He commits to stopping to persecute and to seek the life of David. And then he says at the end of verse 21, Behold, I have acted foolishly and made a great mistake. I'd like to point out those two things. First, I acted foolishly. Saul says he acted foolishly. Ten different word, Hebrew words are translated into English as foolish. This word means to act in contrary to reason. Well, one knows to be true, to disregard what is right. He said, I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong. Boy, that's a very important part of true repentance. I knew it was wrong. He wasn't duped. All along he knew that David was innocent. He acted foolishly. And then he says, I made a great mistake. Now, when he says he's making a great mistake, Saul is not excusing or mitigating his sin. He says earlier, I have sinned. This is not using words to soften the blow. This is a word that means an error made out of duress or persuasion. He's saying, I knew what was right, but I had people pressuring me. I had people influencing me. I had people talking to me. He's referring to the Ziphites. He's referring to Abner. 
Again, not an excuse, but an explanation. Of how he got his eye off the ball. How quickly he changed in his thought process and in his actions. He let other people get into his head. So it's so important that we guard guard ourselves by what other people think and whether people pressure, pressure us to do. Now David gives Saul a symbol of David's acknowledgement of Saul's repentance, verse 22. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. He's putting the weapon back into Saul's hand. Saul says, I'm not going to do you any harm. David says, okay, here's your spear. David's going to trust him. David's going to believe him. And you say, man, what a fool! What a fool! When will he learn? Take a spear and put it back into Saul's hand and invite him to come out and kill him again. What in the world would possess David to believe Saul? Saul lied to him. He knows what Saul is like. What is wrong with David? Well, let's look at verse 23. David's trust is not in Saul. David's trust is in God. Verse 23. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Verse 24. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be in the precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. He's putting the spear back in Saul's hand, not because he trusts Saul. He trusts God. 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 He's not going to have his confidence that Saul won't change. His confidence is that God won't change. That just as Saul repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly went out against David. So God had repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly spared David. In all the times of Saul's unfaithfulness, God was yet faithful. And David was able to look beyond the unfaithfulness of Saul to the faithfulness of God. And in life's circumstances, we need to look beyond the circumstances and look at the Almighty God, of His character, of His promises, and of the way that He's been with us throughout the years. They depart and go in peace. Verse 25, then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David, you will do many things, and would succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Well, next week we'll see that David comes into some mighty temptations and 
look at that. But for today, we see a real high point in the life of David. A real understanding of his trust and confidence in God. So our conclusion. First, other people can be a strong deterrent in our resolve to do what is right. Be careful to whom you listen. All too often, people encourage us to follow our own natural desires as opposed to doing what is right before God. They have their own agendas, their own desires. And weeks later, we'll see what motivated Abner. It was not faithfulness to God. Lesson from David. The constant, current, recurring hardships can begin to erode our patience, our graciousness, and ultimately in our faith in God's goodness. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. We can endure. We can persevere. We can do what's right before God. By God's enablement, by God's grace, by God's providence, and by an understanding of God's character. And looking at God and not just our circumstances. Do not become weary in well-doing. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. David's eventually going to become king. It's a long, long, difficult road. But he hangs in there. Life can be hard. Life can be one problem after another. I don't know what you're going through. But after a while, you can get to the place where you ask yourself, have I been a fool? Have I been serving God in vain? Have I made the right choices? Should I have listened to what everyone else was telling me rather than put my faith in God? Resist the temptation. Take a fresh look at who God is and what God has done in the past. And further, ask yourself, what new is God teaching me in this? How is he growing me in my face? How is he increasing my strengths? How is he revealing himself to me more and more? How am I being a godly influence for him? Lesson. Repentance can be real. And yet temptation and failure may still exist. I believe that Saul was sincere the first time. But Saul was a fallen, weak individual. So what does Saul do? He repents again. He repents again. That's what we do. What do we do when we fail? We repent again. We say, I'm going to be different. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to live my life for others. Do what's right before God. We repent again. May we all continue to allow God's word to be our standard 
for our conduct and our response. Don't use God's providence as an excuse for disobedience. But rather see, God calls us always to follow his word. Touch not the Lord's anointed. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us, especially if there are those that are here today who are extremely weary, who have known hardship and difficulty one after another. And perhaps it's begun to erode their patience, to erode their confidence, or even to erode their concept of the goodness of God. Lord, I pray that you would restore us all. That you would refresh us in a new look at you as we take our eyes off of our circumstances. And rather than to look at all the ways in which these circumstances have caused questions, Lord, help us to see in all these circumstances and situations where we can see your hand at work. When you can, we can see your faithfulness to us. The fact that we're sitting in the pew today demonstrates your continued grace in our lives. We've sung this great song, You Hold Us Fast. Oh Lord, may that be our ultimate confidence. Thank you for holding on to us. Thank you when we repent and fail, we can repent again. Oh Lord, strengthen us. Give us faith and trust in you. The living God, the God who sees, the God who hears, the God who rewards. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.